Welcome back to Subject to Cross. This is your host, Caroline Donato. And I'm your co-host, Pete Kratza. Man, we're going to have to shave a lot off of that last yeah. That last episode. That was like a piece of steak with a lot of fat on it. A lot of fat on it. I yeah. mean, man, we're rusty. Mm-hmm. Mary's here too. Hello. Uh, that's our associate, Mary Lawrence. So we, during this episode of Subject to Cross, we're going to talk about our last trial. Not our last trial. Um, a recent a, a trial. A recent trial that was a full acquittal. It was very successful. It was in Chester County. It was a very difficult case. And we have permission from our client to speak on it. And one of the reasons why I think it's important for us to speak on it is because after the jury decided that our client was not guilty of rape and sexual assault and strangulation and some horrific, horrific accusations, the DA's office went out of their way to publicize a perspective and other agencies of the county also publicized some positions that I think are disrespectful to a jury's decision. Look at you. What? She's getting to be more like me. I'm rubbing off on her. I'm telling Mary that. Um, No, you're right. Um, And this is our opportunity to respond to that. And I, you know, I'm not going to respond to particular prosecutors or particular agencies, but I'll speak generally to what the topic that you just uh, spoke about. One, for anybody whether it is uh, a prosecutor, whether it is uh, another lawyer or some other uh, agency, to talk about the propriety of a verdict or you know, the, the, whether the verdict was correct or incorrect and not sit in the courtroom for the entire trial is ridiculous. You can't sit in on one part of a trial and say, okay, well, you know, that person should have been convicted. I mean, geez, you're a lawyer. You're instructed by judges that they're not supposed to, the jurors aren't supposed to make any decision about a case until they hear all the evidence. You haven't heard all the evidence, so maybe you should sit this one out, okay? Secondly, I think that if, if, if in that trial in particular, if you watched the way the evidence came in, and particularly, and I'm giving you credit here, watched your cross-examination of the complainant, I wasn't the least bit surprised at that verdict. And at a certain point, prosecutors need to take ownership of their own cases and not blame a jury when the, the case goes against them. Listen, we've, we've had cases that we've won, and the prosecutor will say, well, we disagree with the verdict. We respect it. These are difficult cases to prove. Okay, that's fine. But in this particular case, as I recall, uh, the jury was criticized. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll tell you a little bit about the case in a moment, but what I find to be frustrating and maybe this is a romantic view of a governmental agency such as a prosecutor's office, but their job is to seek justice and to seek a fair resolution and to analyze the evidence that they have. And when it is a difficult case, ask a jury sometimes to make that decision because it's not up to them. It's up to a fact finder that shouldn't be the DA's office. And especially in a case like ours, 
where our client did not commit these heinous acts. And his name was put all over the paper for years. He was pulled out of school. His family's name is through the paper. His reputation was dragged through the mud with this accusation. And he was acquitted by a jury of his fellow citizens. And that verdict should be respected. And for a for a DA's office and a county agency to shame that verdict further tarnishes the reputation of a fellow citizen who who was acquitted by a jury. And I think that is inappropriate, and I don't think it's fair, and that's why I wanted to talk about it. Well, what it also does is it, and maybe the intent, I'm I'm not going to presume intent, but the effect of it can be to uh, intimidate the next jury that hears one of those cases. I didn't right? even consider that, yeah. Right. So that's why you don't comment. You know, whenever we're asked by the press about anything, uh, our comments, if anybody ever reads them, are pretty bland. And that's by design. But let's speak generally about the accusations in that case. Okay. And then that trial and, and maybe give the listener, listener, listeners. The anatomy of a, of a uh, trial is that we're talking about? Well, just a practical view of it. Okay. Mary, do you want to give a synopsis of the accusations here? No, I think you should. Okay. You want to just warm up your voice for later? Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So the accusation here was our client met the complainant out at a bar. And I'm just trying to think of it straight from the Commonwealth's perspective. They, They meet at a bar. She didn't, I don't really remember how much she had to drink, but she had, she was sober enough. They come home, she makes a drink. And then they're, um, they make out in the family room. At some point, I'm trying to trim through the fat here. At some point, they're in her bedroom. He is engaging in oral sex, him on her. Well, right. Um, and then at some point, she falls asleep, and he comes back into the bedroom. After she tells him to go to the couch, he comes back in, and he vaginally penetrates her, and he uses handcuffs and... At some point after that, he's in a bathroom and he's destroying the bathroom, causing holes in the bathroom wall. And um, the roommate wakes up to him in the bathroom with the holes in the wall and she's telling him to leave because she didn't get any sleep and she wanted to fall asleep and he can't find his phone, so he takes a while to leave. And she didn't know him. She didn't know him. And and I do welcome you to join in on this. Um, And ultimately, he, he doesn't... He doesn't go to school around here. He was visiting friends. Ultimately, he leaves without his phone. And the next day, the roommate of the complainant is upset with her for keeping her up. And the complainant says, well, I was I was raped. Well, and the fact that the guy put a hole in the bathroom wall, that's why she was upset yeah, with Yeah, and, and the music woke the roommate up. But I'm just trying to share it from the Commonwealth's perspective at first. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. And um, the complainant says she was raped and these awful things happen to her and she they call she goes to work they call the police the police come in and, and interview her then she goes to a hospital for a sexual assault nurse examination and a dna swab um and after that uh she texts the client and they have a text exchange and after that they charge him 
Okay. Yeah. So that was their evidence? That was So that was their All allegation. Right. Well, jeez, it's outrageous that he was acquitted, Caroline. It's terrible that he was acquitted. What yeah. an injustice. Absolutely right. not. Why, right. Pete? Well, I was going to let you do that. I was prompting you to talk about all the problems that they had in this case. How about this? When we get the Commonwealth's case, we see it from a very lopsided perspective at first, right? Because we have to do our own defense investigation. We have to interview our own clients. We have to have our own experts analyze the same evidence, such as DNA. And from our own investigation and our own objective analysis of the Commonwealth's case and evidence helps shape our trial and our trial strategy and quite frankly in this particular case figuring out what the heck happened this night because it was so ridiculous and it was confusing because on the face of it these accusations seemed like she believed them um it didn't seem like she was a malicious complainant it just seemed but they just weren't right it just didn't happen that way so what were the problems mary So the big problems I think that we started diving into first were variations on what her statement, what her story was, the inconsistencies in between what was said initially to the roommates or what wasn't said to the roommates, what was said upon first police contact, what was said at the sane nurse examination, and then what was again said at a recorded interview And then finally, with what was at the preliminary hearing. So those were all the different statements that we analyzed um, to see what kind of inconsistencies which were glaring to us um, in preparing. And the other aspect to this case is we didn't get involved until after the preliminary hearing. So which is the probable cause hearing happened already with a different lawyer. And then the case went to the trial court and the client uh, switched to us. So we inherited just a boatload of information and we had to really stretch it out and look at it. And how many days and nights were we just looking at this, trying to figure out how the heck are we here? Unfortunately, the prior lawyer did a good job at the problem. He did. He did a great job. We had, um, we had, you know, stuff to work with from the, the, the transcript. We get a transcript of the prior testimony and inevitably I would submit when somebody's not telling the truth whether intentionally or not, because it's not our burden of proof to show they're lying, just that they're not telling the truth. Um, But inevitably, when that happens, there are going to be um, contradictions, or we call them inconsistencies, between when somebody is recounting, when they're, whether they're talking to a police officer initially, whether they're testifying under oath, um, there are inconsistencies. and, And those inconsistencies should cause you pause, um, and that's what a jury is instructed. If you if you pause, if you hesitate um, before you know deciding that you know that so and so is guilty, then that's a reasonable doubt. As I recall in this case, what struck me um, was when we got the the body camera footage from the first police officer to arrive, and that police officer, who I've known for a long time, and is a straight shooter. He's not going to try to, you know, pattern his testimony to fit, and we've seen that mm-hmm. recently, to pattern his testimony to fit the narrative that either a prosecutor or an alleged victim, he's going to call it like he sees it. And in that case, um, the the uh, complainant 
had told him she slept through everything. And there's body camera footage when he's in the in the apartment, and it's clear that she had told him that she slept through everything. She didn't tell him anything that she later developed over time and ultimately uh, testified to at a trial in terms of what had happened to her. Now, there's always, prosecutors are always going to make excuses for that, but to jury's credit, they see through that, you know. Yeah, the, the first thing you would say is that you were strangled, you know. The first thing you would say is that, you know, that this happened to you. Um, and I think we were able to show that the story, what did you say, developed like a weed? Grew like a Grew weed. Grew like a weed over time, and it did. It did. Oh, go ahead, Mary. I think another thing that is important to us, but I feel like a lot of times it's easy for either a jury or a prosecutor's office to overlook the little tiny inconsistencies that really add up for us and cause us pause. Like, what really happened? Why are these things different? I think it's easy for other people to be like, oh, well, of course they're not going to remember all the details, or of course, you know, they might mix up a few things here and there. I think that that's easy, but for our clients, those mix-ups are really important. Well, and here's what I'm... I want to talk about that. But you oh, go first. ahead. No, I think it's a balance. I'm always in Caroline's ear, when, and she, I think she'll agree with me on this. Like when she talks about certain inconsistencies, I'm like, they're not going to give a... Can I say shit? Yeah. They're not going to give a shit about that, you know? But I agree, it's a balance. Like when there are multiple inconsistencies on what I call the important stuff, then I think that matters. But I think that the balance you have to strike is not getting bogged down. And okay, you said you know the car was blue here. You said the car was red there. You know, it, it, I think that you don't want to lose the jury by by being accused by a prosecutor of nitpicking. You don't. But here's this is my process, and it's not everybody's, but. This is what Mary, I think, is referencing, and she watches and she helps me with. When we get a tr- when we get a case like that, and we know it's going to trial, and we have a client saying, "I'm innocent. This did not happen. I'm innocent," and his story never changed. No matter how much I cross-examined him, just in meetings, trying to understand it, and he testified, he so testified. we're not getting into anything privileged. Mm-mm. Um, but. To see the field, I needed to see every single inconsistency. I needed to see every, I mean, that's why our theme was, it didn't happen because of three things, inconsistencies, contradictions, and common sense. But that theme developed from just looking at the case and understanding, it was like a eureka moment. This is how we got here. We can now go back in time and we can see what actually happened. And it's because we nitpicked it to such a, a degree that we could see what didn't really matter and we could see where the big problems yeah, I agree with that. lied. So I, sometimes we don't know what inconsistency is small versus which one's pretty major and alarming. And then because we were so intimately familiar with the inconsistencies, when that complainant was on the stand and she wasn't combative, I, I think she thought she was telling, I think she can, I don't know. I, I didn't find her to be combative. I mean, we didn't, it wasn't a hostile cross-examination at all. No, it wasn't. Um, But those inconsistencies just kept growing to the point where at one point I said, I'm just trying to get to the bottom of what happened here, Miss So-and-so. I mean, they grew to such a point where if all of it's true, none of it's true. 
it just can't be true. And I think that's what caused such doubt to this to this jury. You never know what causes doubt to you a jury. You don't know what causes um, doubt to the jury. But, but you know, the, the other issue in this case, I a lot of times um, I try not to think like a lawyer. I, I think that, and the, the present group excluded, but a lot of times lawyers, particularly prosecutors, will talk about common sense, use your common sense, where they're like completely ignoring common sense, human nature, and asking a jury to do the same thing. Because in this case, her, her account that ultimately, you know, grew, like you, you said, made absolutely no sense in terms of, you know, a, a, an allegation of a violent sexual assault with a hypersensitive roommate who had heard music before, who uh, through paper thin walls could hear everything, didn't hear anything during this violent sexual, alleged violent sexual assault, to after being violently sexually assaulting, assaulted, telling the assailant that they can just go sleep on the couch in the living room while your roommate is right next door, not locking your door, not texting anybody, not calling anybody, then uh, recounting that that he comes back into the room to violate her again, um, that she wakes up with her own handcuff that was stored under the bed on her wrist. I mean, it just which was a toy it, handcuff. It, a toy handcuff. It was insane. And the jury could also hear from the other roommates um, that the client wasn't acting like a violent sexual assailant. Yeah, he, he banged his head into a bathroom wall, and he provided an explanation for that. That was the only way that any of this, you know, that, that he was, that, that the roommate um, saw him, and he gave her his name. He gave her his phone number. He asked kind, her to call an Uber. Right. What kind, of a, what kind of a violent sexual assailant leaves their name and number? If I'm sitting in that jury room, I'm like, what, what are we trying well, to be sold here? That was our here? argument. Yeah. That was what we were, we were saying. But the other part of our defense was... I think we were so intimately familiar with the case and we were so sure of what the evidence showed and what what happened just by virtue of looking at it all and hearing it all and and looking at this evidence that even when the evidence came into trial, when the Commonwealth admitted a piece of evidence through their complainant, it was a text message and the complainant, (laughs) (laughs) you're laughing because we disagreed on this. But the complainant uh, adopted that text message as her own. And by the screenshot, you, you wouldn't quite necessarily know whose it was unless you were paying attention. And I let that evidence come in through the complainant because it showed that she was answering anything the Commonwealth ever wanted with whatever the Commonwealth wanted to fit their narrative. And it was really the other roommate's text. Um, there was a point after the complainant testified, where we had a dialogue about does it make sense to call that out? Mm-hmm. And, you know, for the for the defense, it, not calling it out could have also helped yeah. us. It, it could have been fine. It went straight towards our theory of the mm-hmm. defense. It fit the timeline. But it just wasn't true. And that's why I wanted to call it out. And I wanted that piece of evidence to be remarked and put through the right roommate to show the jury what we're telling you is truth. And what we're showing you is what we really believe and what the evidence actually shows. And I think that was important because we could have easily let that go. And I think that was an important moment in the trial. 
Yeah. And that was a big behind-the-scenes battle. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was coming back from picking up lunch, as one does, and <laughs> I come into the <laughs> to the conference room that Pete and Caroline were. Were we in. throwing things at each other? No throwing uh, things, but it it was heated. Yeah. And um, yeah, there was. A, yeah, you get to see us like really arguing with each other. I think in front of clients. Um, we're a little bit more uh, refined, although we uh, I don't hold back and you don't hold back, like in terms of, I think we have a very interesting dynamic during a trial that um, particularly when we win, clients find amusing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, behind the scenes, we can definitely disagree, but that harkens back to whatever episode we just did about the team approach, where mm-hmm. you look at things from multiple different angles and you come up with a, um, you know, a, a perspective that maybe you didn't have. But it's the process. Never, it's the process. the process. It's never malicious, though. No. 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 And I, it wasn't malicious then. It just was healthy I've, discussion. I've upset you. I've upset you. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, but it's well, not there. malicious, but yeah. I mean, it can, you can, know. Cancels yeah. out, huh? Yeah. 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 Um, when we've prepared for trial, especially when we're in the conference room right near the front and we come out and, like, we need a break from each other for a moment. You're talking about you and me, not you Mary. Me. We never need a break from Mary. No, Mary, yeah. you can hang out as long yeah. as you want. Right. Um, the front desk, I've walked out of there and somebody, whoever was sitting at the front desk, looked at me with like big eyes. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Were we loud? And she's like, yeah, but I, you know, first I was going to see if someone needed to go in there. And I looked down and I saw it was PEK and CGD. And I thought, <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's why they put us upstairs all the time. They do now. put us upstairs yeah. now. Um, I think that our attention to detail, the fact that we're prepared, and you know, we always want to be more prepared than the other side, um, and that takes a lot of work, takes a lot of time, but it pays off. It totally because, pays off. You know, when you have, um, and you've had, you know, we're not talking talking about other trials, but you've seen that there are witnesses that you come in prepared to, to cross them on a certain thing, and then they just take U-turns, they, you know, they, they, go, they meander, they change their testimony and act like it's not a big deal. But as you guys often say, we have the receipts. You know, if you want to go there, then we have, we have this. All right, okay, you want to go there? Here we go. So, and that's preparation. Oh, um, look at you right? using the language. The receipts, yeah, the, the vernacular. Um, I was waiting for it. I was waiting for somebody so, to say So, you know, it. we're never going to reveal our entire playbook to prosecutors because we know they do listen to this. But the, the point is that preparation, I think, comes down to um, it, it, preparation, thinking outside the box, um, and just outworking the other side. And it helps when you have clients that are innocent. And, and well, it's also... Th- <laughs> God, it's the most stressful. Yeah. It is the most stressful in these trials because... Yeah, but, and to be clear, we're, we don't have to prove innocence. We don't have to prove anything. It's the burden of proof on the other side. But the, pro, the, the knock on wood, I, I know you don't knock on wood, but I do. I think that the reason we have success in these cases is the work that we put in, the fact that we are making um, uh, arguments... We're, you know, we know what the evidence is going to show. Sometimes our opponents will tell a jury, 
you know, what the evidence is going to show. We just look at each other like, okay, you want to go on that? And if you do that, if you tell a jury that this is what the evidence is going to show, and then the evidence in there, you've lost the jury. They don't trust you. How about in that trial where the opening, the the Commonwealth said quite a few things, and when I would cross-examine a witness or direct examine a witness, or no, it was more cross-examination because it was the Commonwealth's own witnesses, I represent to you that the Commonwealth said in their opening X, Y, and Z, is that true? No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it right. was it was really effective. Remember the one, the first one of these we did together? They have, and, you know, sometimes you and I, one will open, one will close. Sometimes we'll do it, you know, one person will do both. But it, one trial that we had... They opened on one theory, and I loved that the, that the prosecutor was like a firebrand speech. And you know, I, uh, normally I don't like to address the Commonwealth's opening when I open to a jury. It's like, oh, their opening doesn't matter anyway. Here, you know, just did listen you address to me. that opening? I did. I, I said, I think I said something like, "Remember that that that." I, I know I did it in closing. Remember when uh, I told you that the prosecutor said X, Y, and Z, and they weren't going to be able to prove any of that. And then when I closed, I said, yeah, did they prove any of that? Because in that case, if you remember, they opened on one theory, then they saw how the case went in, and it was like the closing had nothing to do with what the first lawyer had told the jury. What a mess. Two things I remember. That client was acquitted in about two hours. It was two and a half hours. And they hugged him. They hugged him. The jury hugged him. The jury hugged us. That was like a really powerful experience. So let's get back to the October trial. What else do you want to talk about? Um, oh, didn't you want to talk about, didn't somebody ask you how you can be a feminist and defend alleged sexual assault people? Someone, someone asked my husband that. Oh. And it got to me. And it was perplexing because I just don't think they're the same thing. And I, upon thinking of it, I still don't think it's the same thing. Feminism in any way you slice it, is some version of women have equal rights. Women can do what any gender can do. Um, So if anything, to say that as a feminist, I can't, as a criminal defense attorney, a competent criminal defense attorney, defend somebody who's accused of a sex crime, I can't defend them, I can't give a competent and strong defense, is the is anti-feminist. It's the antithesis. It's the, as I said at lunch, it's the antithesis antithesis. of feminism. Because I'm a woman, I can't cross-examine another woman. Because I'm a woman, I can't defend somebody's constitutional right to have a fair trial and to due process. No, it is feminism. What I'm doing is feminism. Mary and I are in a world of men, and we do it just as well, if not better. You, in the beginning of the trial, you were competent, you did fine for the voir dire objection. At the end of the trial, oh my God, it was a different Mary. It like in the beginning of the trial it was, Your Honor, I we would like you to consider, blah 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 blah. And at the end of the trial, it was, Your Honor, we object because blah 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 blah. This is the law, and this is what's appropriate, and we'd ask you to consider this. It was just such confidence and such gumption, and it was really cool to see. I felt like a proud, I wouldn't say mother because I'm s- close to your age. <laughs> older sister (laughs) yes definitely uh i mean i i felt that way too just like proud of myself and i was proud to do it for in in front of you guys and just um show kind of my growth and i was shocked that i felt that way that quickly at the end of the trial that um i 
could present like that. But I, uh, yeah, exactly. Your mentorship and both of you helping me with practicing and preparing in this team um, effort really helps me, especially in learning how to be a lawyer. And that never ends. Like Mary tells me all the time, she's the most fearful of doing it in front of me. It's like me practicing in front of you, Pete. Well, that's because I throw things at you if I don't like what you're saying. You are so irritating. Yeah. And you're also my mentor. And it's just, if I can do it in front of Pete Kratza, judge We're to the point where if we're nice to each other, we say, yeah, we we can't do that anymore. Yeah, we're done. We're done. We have to stop. Gets uncomfortable. Yeah, like, don't call me your mentor. Stop it. You're like 20 and a half years older than me? (laughs) Yeah, but it's kind of a compliment. Let's talk about the fact that we may do on this podcast with two microphone stands, one headset, and I am really admiring the microphone stand that I made for you, Mary. Yeah, it's pretty handy. Thanks. It's I mean, I, set I up think on I its handy. side. I, 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 my wife will tell you I am not handy, but that might be my best work. Oh, and I also found the plug for the machine. You did. Yeah. And also, okay, I really got to go. Okay. So anything else? Nope. You guys going to be okay until Tuesday? I have to go to Texas. Oh, what are you doing great. in Texas? I have to go to a wedding. Oh, wow. You guys still go to weddings? People still get married. First or second wedding? First. Wow. All right. Well, signing off. Is that what I said? It, I think so. Is that what is I used that, to say? Is that, is that what you said? That's it for know. this episode of Subject to Cross. We'll try signing not to off. take a year between the next podcast. I mean, just keep keep yelling Subject to Cross at us and we'll get in the studio. <laughs> All right. All right. Bye. Bye.